Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hey, everybody. Thanksgiving is finally here, and Podcast One Sportsnet is your home for the best football podcast to help you kick off your Turkey Day games. Get all your football chatter from the biggest names in football, including Dan Patrick, Rich Eisen, Jim Harbaugh, Ross Tucker, RJ Bell, The Underdog Network, and more. Happy Thanksgiving from all of us here at Podcast One. Check out these great shows every week on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Chris Herring of 538, somebody I love talking with, and we go in a lot of interesting directions in this one. We ended up talking about Charlotte and these teams that are on the fringe of the East playoff picture quite a bit. Also, his piece on Tyson Chandler and the Lakers and some of the other storylines we're watching around the league. This episode is brought to you by Rad Power Bikes. Go to radpowerbikes.com slash podcast and you can check out their awesome Cyber Monday deal. Robinhood, an awesome app that you can use or website to check out investing. Go to robinhood.realgm.com and you can get a stock to add in your portfolio, which is fantastic. Betonline.ag, use that podcast one promo code for a 50% signup bonus. And then our friends at TrueCar and Pluto TV. This episode runs a little bit over an hour. I think it's the substance of it's about an hour 10. And Lots of good stuff. A different conversation than I necessarily expected, but I'm really happy we went there. So I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, no problem at all, Danny. Thanks for having me. Something I enjoy about this point, we're a little bit over a month into the season, is that we kind of have an inkling of certain broad scope things, but we don't necessarily know. Like some of the teams, like for me, it was something that I've found striking so far this season is that the teams like the Raptors and the Bucks that look legit, like I, I believe in them as long as they can stay healthy, but then the middle is still a little bit loose and a little bit jiggly. But I, I, I like that because especially in the West, like all these teams are super close. So it's going to take some time to sort it out. Yeah, the West, I have no clue what's going on with. I mean, I, I tweeted earlier this week that I, I don't think there's going to be anything that jumps out and just shocks me from the West perspective. And I, I say that as someone that tweeted, I won't say all summer, but, you know, definitely wrote about and kind of tweeted something to the effect of thinking that the Grizzlies could make the playoffs this year. Now, do I think they'll finish as a top three seed? No, that would shock me. But outside of, you know, that sort of thing happening or them being one of the three or four best teams in the West, everything else is kind of up for grabs. I mean, the Blazers still look good and are getting attention for that. The Lakers have seemed to kind of put it together a little bit. I think the the signing of Tyson Chandler has, has kind of buoyed them a little bit and given them a, a good option uh, off the bench as a backup role for JaVale. You know, I think all those other teams are kind of bunched together, and that's why you see that. But the East is really interesting because I do feel like those teams, those teams at the top, those four teams, so you've got Philly, Toronto, you've got Indiana, and I assume that Boston will somehow end up there as well. That's what I saw coming, and I, I wrote a couple times this summer as well that I wouldn't have been that surprised if the Pacers somehow, if one of those other three teams struggles, that maybe you see the Pacers jump into the top three. Obviously, the Bucks could do that too. I don't know that any of us thought that their offense would be the sustainably fun and and solid to watch night in, night out with Budenholzer. So 
I mean, I, I think those top five in the East are probably pretty set. I think the West is a lot more fluid, and normally we think about that the other way around. So it has been interesting from that perspective. The top of the league has been very fun. The middle of the league seems like it changes every week on us and, and is kind of driven a lot more by individual stars. So it's been a lot more fun to watch than I expected. Yeah, and I think it's also been driven a lot by the schedule, you know, like when teams have back-to-backs and who they Absolutely. play and all those sorts of things. But yeah, so with the East, I think what's What's notable is that before the season, I think a lot of us felt that you could draw a second line of division, which I did and a lot of other people did. But basically, we agreed that there was a, a, a top five. And then the argument and those five teams are the five best teams in the Eastern Conference in terms of record, in terms of quality, everything. And then there was this question about, well, you know, there are other teams below that. And they were all teams that we didn't trust for various reasons. And I think what's been so telling about this season so far. And yeah, it's true that when we're recording this, the Hornets are only a half game below the Celtics, but uh, there are reasons to think that those teams are going to be different moving forward in terms of Boston being better. But what's so interesting is that really nobody outside of that five has stepped up. So it's not that circumstance like in the West where, you know, some of it is the like teams towards the top sagging down a little bit due to injuries or ineffectiveness or whatever. In the East, it's just that no one has stepped up at all. And that creates a an interesting decision process for all of the teams that are kind of still in it. So I would say that's, you know, the Hornets, the Wizards, the Pistons, the Heat, the Nets, and maybe the Magic. And so now, I mean, you're sitting there with those teams going, well, if a 500 record not only is going to get get us in, but probably will be pretty good, I think a lot of those teams are going to end up, you know, at least for the next month, maybe even to, through the trade deadline saying, well, if that's all we have to do, we can do that. Yeah, I, I mean, they, they can do it. It's just a question of how all in do you want to go about something like that? I mean, obviously today, I think most of us saw the, the different reports that are out there about, you know, about the Hornets. And obviously, you know, if you're watching them, you've seen what Kemba's been able to do and how, you know, his offensive game and some contributions from a few other people have kept them not only afloat, but kind of, like you said, in contention and right behind that that first pack of teams. And do you want to try to kind of make an all-in move here? Obviously, with Kemba's free agency coming up and trying to put more talent around him, uh, which... Man, you know, that's a tough one just because I look at that team and I don't see them anymore as being that close. I kind of feel like they've already, in a more quiet way and in a less explosive way, have kind of to some extent already kind of gone through their Wizards moment where, you know, they decided to, I mean, first of all, they already had Dwight Howard, you know, and they, and the fact that they have thrown big contracts at people, obviously Batum kind of being the, the poster child for that. Um, they've already kind of gone through a GM who, who made some of those decisions. And I just kind of feel like it's a team that gets a lot less attention because they don't have big headline-making names there, and it's a smaller market. It's not D.C. So we didn't hear about those things, but I kind of feel like we've already seen them kind of come up short a number of times. And they realistically, you would think that they they probably aren't going to be a contender no matter how many changes you make to that team. So it's a tough spot. You don't want to give away a whole lot of assets if you're in their position, but at the same time, you do want to make the team as competitive as you can around Kemba. So how do you do that without giving away too much of your future? So it is interesting. You know, I look at that. I look at Orlando, who is a team that, like you said, they, they've been they've been winning enough to where you can look at them and say, maybe we've got a shot at this. But I, I guess I'm reluctant to want to see these teams do something that they shouldn't. The Wizards in particular, I don't even know that they have 
the means really to do much more to try to go all more more all in than they already have. Uh, it didn't even dawn on me until I think I was reading a Michael Lee piece in, in The Athletic, and he had said that this is the first team, the first team ever that's re-signed all three of their guys, like all three max guys uh, who were all homegrown where they drafted these three guys. And I was like, is that true? And so the fact that they're capped out, you know, goes without saying. So, I, I mean, there are certain teams that I don't necessarily know if they could realistically do anything that puts them in the same breath with the top three or top four in the East. And, you know, maybe we have to expand it to a top five. I, I think Indiana might be a little bit behind those other teams just as far as sheer talent. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. Like, I I feel like the Pistons kind of already did this as well, where they kind of had their all-in moment. And now do you really want to go a lot further than you already have when you're probably not going to get to the upper echelon of the East? But is it important for you to make the playoffs just to be able to make it? And maybe some teams are in that spot. But I, I'm not really sure where you go from here if you're those teams, other than to just hope that your roster is good enough to get in in the East already without having to really go more all-in than you already have. Along those lines, something that is concerning to me for those that collection of teams that are kind of, they're not on the outside looking in, they're just on the outside of the top, is that all of them have their own first-round picks. So that's an easy way for a team to go, oh, we can, you know, we can do this thing and that will make us a playoff team. And there's also a big disconnect for a couple of different reasons between ownership I mean, coaches are an obvious one because they just want to win as many games as possible. And sometimes either a fan base or NBA Twitter or whatever you want to call it in terms of the benefits of being a low playoff seed. Like there's this, like there, there are times that people, people ask me like, they're like, well, would you rather, like, wouldn't you rather tank if all you could do is be the seventh seed? It's like, that's not the way most teams think. And no. so you, you can make an argument and I wouldn't necessarily that that's how teams should think. Like this was a case for the Clippers. Somebody brought this up. They're like, well, wouldn't they be better served just not going for it? And it's like, no, you, you want to, I mean, if, if the choice is making the playoffs or not making the playoffs, first of all, if your goal is to predict behavior, teams are always going to go for it to some degree, whether or not they sacrifice assets is a different question, but right. making it, I mean, you can go back to that Bucks team that got the eight seed a few years ago. And so that's a, a real risk for me. And you brought up the idea of why Washington and Charlotte are different. And I think that one of the reasons there, well, market is obviously a big part of it. But another one is that Washington had more playoff success than Charlotte, including that year where they very well could have made the conference finals. They would have, but John Wall got hurt. I believe that was a wrist injury. And then the other part of it is that Kemba Walker's best seasons have come in years that Charlotte didn't make the playoffs. So you don't have that confluence of like, oh, this guy's awesome. And now I get to see him, you know, do it in the playoffs. Whereas John Wall, you know, some of his his best years were when the Wizards were in it, and they didn't do much more in the playoffs than Charlotte did, but at least they were more involved. And so I think that's a part of it as well. Market size is important too. And that Charlotte team never really, I don't think anybody ever bought in as them being a potential conference finals team, whereas Washington got reasonably close once. Yeah. I mean, that that's the, that's the challenge um, with, with where they are is that so many of those things play into it. Uh, Kemba's played out of his mind uh, these last couple of days, obviously. And, and the fact is they've, you know, they've still been very, very close games and it kind of feels pretty closely tethered to what they've seen the last couple of years now is that he can play that well. It might barely get them in the playoffs. You know, at times I think he had, uh, was it Al Jefferson a couple of years ago where it was the same sort of thing where, you know, he has a little bit of help, but it's mostly Kimba out there. And obviously, you get somebody else for him, and that probably does put you over the top. 
But I, I, I just don't know between market size, the fact that you obviously don't want to, you don't want to put yourself any more on the hook for certain things. I mean, it's Charlotte. And so, you know, if you do go out and get somebody, the cap for so many teams now with, with trades and what have you next summer, that's the other question is, do you want to load your cap prematurely at a time where maybe you could go out and sign someone? For a small market team, it's not a concern because maybe you wouldn't be able to go out and get somebody, really. Maybe they wouldn't be interested in coming to play in that city, and so you lock them in now. But that, like you said, the fact that Kemba's already been playing pretty much as well as you can play from an offensive perspective for a couple years. I mean, it was funny. I've talked to Rich Cho several times, and he said, you know, we're just trying to see how much more room there is to really improve if you're Kemba. That's kind of a big part of what our franchise is rooted in right now, especially if you're going to try to max someone like that um, a summer from now. So, I mean, he's already kind of done that. I, I just keep thinking, like, there can't be that much more room for him to improve. He's already gotten so good on offense, and, you know, he's only as tall as he is. So if they decide to make a trade, that's a big move. You know, if someone decides to trade with them, I keep thinking, like, who would even want Batum, who you figure made a very good chance he either would have to be part of it or – just to kind of clear their books a little bit to make space for someone else. Or, like you said, yes, they've got first-rounders, but do they have to kind of attach someone that is young that for a small market team, that especially a small market team that's got big money on the books, is going to be a huge factor um, in, in what they do going forward just because they're going to need people that don't cost as much. That said, Bridges has looked good. That said, Monk has looked not as great over the last year and a half, but would probably still have value to someone else willing to take a chance on a young guy. So the, the assets are there for it. But I, again, man, I, a part of it feels like just wanting to sell Kemba going forward and, and showing him that you're making an effort. Maybe he feels like he deserves to kind of see the Hornets make that sort of efforts improve. But that's a lot to just sink into kind of the recruitment or the hope that you're going to bring one person back especially a person that even when he's playing as well as he's played, hasn't really gotten you over the hump. That's no criticism of him at all. I just kind of feel like that's why it's a tough one for me because I don't know, you know, if you're fortunate, maybe it buys you a round of a playoff series, which is important for a small market team. That's money. You know, maybe it's more people buying season tickets, but it's it's also a, a really steep sort of thing to try to give up big assets to try to just to try to get to the playoffs and maybe win around. It's a great point, and so much more to talk about with Chris Herring. But first, a message from Rad Power Bikes. They are a consumer direct electric bike company that produces five unique models of electric bikes. And since they're a consumer direct brand, buyers get a premium electric bike without having to pay the huge markups caused by dealers and third-party retailers, priced at often less than half the price of comparable bikes on the market because of dealer and retail markups being cut out of the picture. And on top of those already fantastic prices, this Cyber Monday, which is November 26th, the Monday after Thanksgiving, Rad Power Bikes is making it even easier to get people riding. They have deals on all of their models of electric bikes, up to $400 off per model, and it's a one-day-only sale, but on top of those discounted prices, it also includes free shipping on all electric bikes to the lower 48 states. And these bikes have 750 watts of power, which is the most powerful motor an e-bike can have while maintaining a street-legal status, no license, registration, or insurance required. You can finance your bike for as low as 0% APR, just about $100 a month can get you riding. Can get to 20 miles per hour with zero pedaling, 
They also, all five models give riders a chance to ride pedal free with throttle, utilize five levels of pedal, pedal assist for an additional boost or combination two. And you can go 20 to 40 miles on a single charge. So what you do, you go to www.radpowerbikes.com slash podcast to learn more. And don't forget to shop their Cyber Monday deal on November 26th to save even bigger. And again, that's radpowerbikes.com slash podcast. Also have a message from Pluto TV. Pluto TV is the leading free streaming television service. You can watch over 100 TV channels and thousands of movies on demand, all completely free. Pluto TV never asks for a credit card. You don't even need to sign up to watch for free. That makes it the easy and completely legal way to watch your favorite TV shows and hit movies for free. You can download Pluto TV for free on all your favorite devices, including your phone, smart TVs, PlayStations, Amazon Fire TVs, Apple TV, smart TV, wherever you want to go, wherever you stream. And it's just an amazing thing. You don't have to go through any of the hoops that are typically connected with all of these sorts of things. So what are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again, downloading Pluto TV. Charlotte also has to deal with, I mean, I've tried to game out their how their season affects Kemba a bunch of different times, and it's always a challenge with these players who are unrestricted for the first time, because the biggest question is, what do they value? And so with Kemba Walker, one downside for Charlotte of him playing as well as he is, is that the money part of it is actually balancing a little bit, you know, so obviously they can offer a fifth year, they can offer higher in season raises, which is a, you know, a small but meaningful difference depending on how he feels about each individual dollar. But if another team is willing to give him a four-year max, then you start to get where the, the friction will be how much does he want to be on a competitor? And then you get into the question of, well, what does this season for Charlotte mean? So if Charlotte, let's say they stay healthy this year and they get like the sixth seed and get knocked out in the first round, there's a chance that Kemba sees that and he's like, cool, you know, like I, I'm fine with being on that kind of team, but maybe the best case scenario for the Hornets is actually a bad thing for them retaining Kemba because if he goes there and looks at it, he's like, I'm in my late 20s. I'm basically consigning myself to this being the rest of my NBA life. And I, I've used the phrase basketball right. mor- mortality a few times. I think we've even talked about it a little bit. And so I don't know Kemba. I don't know what he's valuing, what his approach is. But I think there's actually a downside risk for Charlotte of actually getting towards the top of these scenarios. Because if he's like, if this is the best, this might not be good enough for me. Because he's going to have some real options on the table. You talked about how many teams are having space or going to value space. And while I don't know who necessarily, like, are the Lakers going, where is he going to fall in on on their priority ordering and who says yes to them. But there are going to be some really good situations out there. And especially especially if Kemba is willing to go a little bit unconventional. I mean, theoretically, the Sixers could offer him similar money for 40 years. I mean, obviously they couldn't give him the fifth. And so then, and the Knicks, that's, you know, he grew up in New York City. You have all those kind of things. And so Charlotte has this, you know, it seems like he's very connected with the area and they know better than I do, but it's just such an, such a big gamble also for them. Like if they commit to money and really the reason they're doing that is to get Kemba to come back and it's the same basic story. And then they're like, well, crap, we added another, I don't know, 10, 15 million for whatever year we're going to do that. And now we don't have the, the draw. We don't have the reason our team is good. That's a downside risk too. Oh, it's a huge risk. And I mean, I, I'm always really fascinated by these teams that, you know, frankly, find themselves right in the middle. And by the middle, I mean kind of anywhere from that 6 to 11 range or so in the East or the West, for that matter, especially small market teams, because they've got huge decisions to make. 
it is a massive decision to make. I mean, for any franchise, but especially a small market team to fork over a max or anything close to that to someone who, you know, is not a young guy who meaning like, you know, is in their prime right now, but won't be by the time they're out of the next contract and someone that really hasn't been so great that they can single-handedly will you to like a playoff round win. And based on that alone, you know, I, I actually feel like a couple teams have been in that spot, not, not just small market teams. I feel like Toronto was was very close to that spot, obviously kind of the high end of what we're talking about where they had won playoff rounds. But the fact that they kept getting smacked down by LeBron and the fact that they had to make decisions about DeMar and Kyle Lowry. Uh, so not quite max deals, at least not with Lowry, um, but a lot of money for guys that, you know, who knows exactly how they'll age over time. Um, guys, at least in DeMar's case, who did not have, you know, a, a game that was really all that conducive to the idea of, you know, kind of modern analytics, although he's gotten a little bit better with that and has gotten better as a passer since he's gone to San Antonio. I think Memphis was an interesting example of this with Conley, someone who'd never been an all-star, and obviously then Gasol as well, um, where you're giving guys a lot of money to be there for, you know, in Memphis's case, a small market um, and a team that had won in an era where the league was a lot different, where it wasn't really only teams that were good at shooting and and stuff like that were really making noise at the end of the playoffs. So I, I think it's interesting. Now, what's really fascinating about those teams, too, is that they've found ways to figure it out, either by kind of reshuffling or retooling. Um, Toronto stuck it out long enough, obviously not with the coach, with Casey, but they kind of kept that team together long enough to, to wait out LeBron's finish and the Eastern Conference. And so now they're able to kind of look at things differently. They were able to make a run at Kawhi and get him and obviously look great right now. And so in, in that case, it was worth the risk for them uh, because it's very hard to tear down a team that can win, you know, without blinking 40 games. If you get to 40 games, that's obviously a 500 team. Tearing that down, you have to be very, very careful about doing that and how you do it because you can't guarantee that you're going to get right back there. It's great to have picks, but depending on who your front office is and how much you trust the people in your front office, you can't guarantee that you're going to hit on those picks, which is part of the reason that teams a lot of times don't want to prioritize picks and trades like that. So um, it's a huge decision. Um, it, it very well could be better for Charlotte, but at the same time, you can't just assume that you're going to get a better player than Kemba. Your hope at that point has to be that you can get a number of players that are better uh, maybe not better than him, but more players that kind of make up for the things that he can't do. Obviously, on the defensive end, maybe you get players that um, you get a team like Miami together where you've got a, a bunch of guys, but not just one lead guy. And I feel like they're kind of in an interesting spot, too, where they've got a lot of guys that are paid quite well, uh, but really no star on that roster. And so it, all these things are challenges. All these teams that are in the middle have a, an immense challenge to kind of figure out what track they want to go down. And what sense it makes to kind of stay on that track if you don't think you're going to ever win substantially more than you are right now. Right. And that honesty of evaluation is extremely important. It's what are we and not getting not getting sucked into the idea of, well, we could be this because, you know, there are certain times and, and that's the difference with something like what Cleveland did. Like Cleveland, I know that there are fans there that are disappointed and distressed by the, the fact that they have all this money, not only for the current year, but for next year tied up in players that 
made a lot more sense when LeBron was there than, than now. That's the cost of being a championship contender and winning a championship is having those years if, if the guy leaves. Like, that is a very different decision. While I disagree with what they did with Larry Nance, I disagree with what they did with Kevin Love, those decisions were actually made after LeBron left, and that's its own thing. So I, I will write on that at some point. We all will. But Charlotte, you know, they're in a, a different place. And, I mean, if they lose Kemba, it would be more of a one-year pain than beyond that, though Batum and Cody Zeller go go to through 2020-21. And they would basically, probably they would just be awful, absolutely awful for next year if Kemba, if Kemba leaves. And that actually leads to a really interesting dynamic because depending on how much power the teams that have, let's say Charlotte wants to be a buyer. If I were a team and Charlotte, you had a player good enough that Charlotte's going to give a first round pick. One of the first conversations I would have with them is I'm like, well, can we get your 2020 pick instead? And <laughs> then you're taking yeah. on you're taking on that kind of risk. And maybe Charlotte has a better idea of what Kemba's doing than that other team does. And and certainly Charlotte would be within their means to say, yeah, you can do that, but we're going to protect the hell out of that pick. I mean, that's another another part of this. And yeah, I mean, it's it's high stakes for them. And it's so weird to have the stakes that they do when even their best case scenario is probably losing in the first round or maybe winning in the first round and then getting worked in the second, you know, something like that. Yeah, but you know, it's upside versus downside. And the downside risk for them is, is being, you know, an absolute doormat for a long time because Charlotte, small market team, hard for them to get free agents. You know, like basically that idea of, well, if Kemba leaves, then how long is it going to be until they're a playoff team? And the answer could be a really long time, especially because they're going to have to build up their base. And that actually gets into something. You brought this up a little bit with Charlotte and their young guys. That's a big difference between Charlotte and let's say Toronto. Like the production that Toronto has gotten out of those guys really helped them bridge this gap. Like it could have been that as the players aged out of their primes and everything else, that it would be a problem. And those guys like Van Vliet, who's having a rough year, are are more expensive now. And DeLon Wright's going to be there, assuming they keep him and all that. But at least they have those guys to kind of fill in the gaps, either when somebody's injured or just that bench unit really helped lift Toronto up last year. Whereas Kemba had to deal with one of the worst benches in the entire league for most of last year. And if they had been better there, all of their clutch game struggles would not have been as big a deal because they would have been in fewer close games. Yeah, I mean, it, it still blows me away that, you know... Uh, I can't remember exactly what your reaction was, but mine and several other people was like, the the Hornets are signing who when they got Tony Parker? Because, one, it meant that Parker was leaving the Spurs, which was kind of mind-boggling to all of us. But also the idea that uh, Charlotte was going to throw real money at him. I mean, not not ridiculous money, but for where Tony Parker is in his career, that's real money. And the sort of money that, you know, depending on how you use it, can make a big difference between whether you see the playoffs or not. But also, you know, it, on some level it being somewhat hard to argue with the logic just because they've been so deficient at the backup guard position where Kemba kind of has been his best backup and him just playing long minutes has been a better alternative than really anybody else they've had there. So, I mean, the bench has always been a problem there in Charlotte. Um, you know, they've tried different things out. They tried to bring Dwight in and, and tried to bring Zeller off the bench and, and different things, and none of it really worked, but... Yeah, I, I, I really think your point before is interesting that if you were to actually get a first rounder out of Charlotte, if Charlotte decides they really want to go for it, uh, which again, I could kind of understand the logic there. Michael Jordan really seemed last year to want to not really have to consider dealing Kimba away. Uh, Michael Jordan obviously has a ton of roots there. It's why probably he owns that team specifically in North Carolina. And he doesn't like the idea of not being competitive uh, for obvious reasons, just when you know his 
his history um, as a player. And, and the idea that a team might trade with them kind of banking on the fact that Charlotte will mess this up. Maybe it'll be that Kimba doesn't actually end up resigning there. Maybe it'll be that even if Kimba resigns there that he ages poorly or something or that he gets hurt or that the second star that they get, you know, depending on who that would be, maybe that person's deal will be up and, you know, the team that's trading that person away will have knowledge of the fact that that player has no interest in playing in a small market long term. And so maybe he won't want to resign. I, I mean, the number of things is is kind of endless, but basically what you're suggesting is that maybe a team banks on the, the the Hornets kind of screwing it up a couple of years from now to what point their their pick would be more valuable at that point. And so that's an interesting way of thinking about it too, obviously because, you know, at worst I feel like Charlotte probably ends up maybe 10th in the East. At best you could see them maybe being a, a you know, outside chance of a five, maybe a six seed. And so that that is a big difference depending on whether or not they're a lottery team or not. So it, it, it becomes interesting. I, I found Charlotte's predicament pretty interesting for a while. Um, they're playing better than I expected, but at the same time, they've never been truly bad. I mean, even the, the worst year they've had over the last five was a season in which they very easily could have made the playoffs if they could have finished off so many of these games at the end where they – what was it? They went all of – not last season, but I think the season before – without winning a game that was decided by three points or fewer. And the odds of that happening, and then I think this year they've only won one or two games like that of the five or six they've played. So they've been, like, historically unlucky um, for the last few years, which that's the sort of thing that kind of emboldens you to say, oh, we can, you know, we can we can do this. And that's what you said before, just about you have to be rational about where you're at and what you could realistically be in a best-case scenario. If you can't do that, then it seems like someone is likely to be able to take advantage of Charlotte in the next year or two, whether it's a Kemba trade or something different, and that could kind of cripple them for a while if they're not careful. Along the close game front, I mean, I think I think this is amazing. So over the last six seasons, counting this season as one of them, so five before this year and present, Charlotte has only had a, a net rating. This is using clean the glass, so filtering out garbage time. They've only had a net rating below negative 0.3. So that's basically even. Like, they've only right. had a rating below that once, and that was the year they won 33 games in 14-15. I think they dealt with a bunch of injuries that year. Every other year, they've been that or above, and yet they've only had one year, or sorry, two years over 500 because that first of those six they were 43 and 39 so they were barely over that year right. and it's just it's just rough i mean there's a there's a lot of bad luck there and there are a lot of injuries even in the years where they were like positive but they but just didn't end up winning enough games and so how do you reconcile that like do you think it's going to continue i think they're comfortable with that level of success but can they keep it going brought up Tony Parker. And I think another part of the reason why Parker going there was so surprising is that he looked to me at least to be on his last legs. It was nice that he recovered from the quad injury and everything else, but like when I watched him last year, he looked like a guy was was close to done and he has been a lot better so far this year. And so there are kind of two ways to see that. One is he's outperforming what we should expect for the rest of the season and he's not that guy. And then the other part is maybe the injuries and everything else that he was dealing with or being a part of a different system is opening things up a little bit more. And which one of those two it is will be incredibly important for Charlotte this year, especially because now they've been trusting Parker enough to have him close games. I mean, he hit two big shots in that win over Boston when Kemba looked exhausted, like Kemba had been shouldering the burden for almost that entire game. And he's just like, somebody else do something for a few plays and Parker got two buckets. And even though Charlotte won by more than those two buckets, the game would have been very different without them. Yeah, no, Parker, 
I mean, it, it, it was hard to to not think that he might be done last year just because he, I mean, it was, it looked that bad for a while. And I kind of feel like, especially when it's him or anybody else with that team, when it looks bad there, you're always going to have that question because the Spurs, you know, the system as well as you could possibly know it. I mean, everybody who's playing there for the most part has been there for years already. Parker, that's more true of him than really anybody. But also, he was coming off such a bad injury, one that, you know, I, I don't really remember having heard of too many injuries like that, at least not in the time that I was covering the league and even maybe before it. And so you just wondered what kind of impact that might have on him long term. And given that and his age and kind of juxtaposing those two things, it wouldn't have been that long. It wouldn't have been a long shot that he was done. I mean, it would have made sense. But it has been good to see him kind of rebound a little bit, and especially for a team that needs it. I mean, that second unit looks so much better. Uh, Bridges has been a lot of fun to watch. I mean, I, I don't think anyone thinks he's going to win rookie of the year or anything like that. But to me, he's looked like one of the more fun rookies. He had a really nice preseason as well. Uh, Monk has his moments from time to time. Bacon is, is you know, a, a good, useful player, it looks like. Lamb has come along really nicely. So you, you see the makings of something. I mean, I was saying this about the Mavericks last night, you know, when I get a chance to watch each of these teams play. You see the makings of something there. I mean, in Charlotte's case, I don't think it's anything that would get them, you know, through the second round. But, you know, I if they made the playoffs, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. If they managed to win a round, particularly if they were able to get up to the five or the six seed and Kemba gets hot, it wouldn't blow me away if they won a round in the playoffs. I, I mean, I, I think that they are capable of playing well enough for six or seven games to maybe get around. But again, you know, short of them getting another legitimate star, and quite honestly, that star would probably have to be better than Kemba is as an all-around player. I just don't see how I would expect them to win more than one round, even in the East. And so that's the question is how heavily do you want to invest as a small market team, a team that's built around someone that I don't even know if they're deficiencies as much as it's just kind of like size limitations. The team has flaws. The team has massive money sunk into um, a player or two and, and big money sunk into other guys that, you know, that aren't going to be what you'd kind of hope that they'd be. I think Kid Gilchrist kind of falls under that to some extent, as much as I love Kid Gilchrist. Uh, so that's just kind of the reality of where they are. And I think that's kind of their big question long term is like, what's next? And and of what you said does it make full sense to re-sign Kemba no matter what it costs? Because I think I love Kemba. He's one of the most enjoyable players to watch in the league, particularly when he gets hot. But I think we've kind of seen the limitations as to how far this team can go on his shoulders. And I, and I don't even think that's really a, a, a critique of him as much as it is just reality. I'm excited to see what guys like Miles Bridges can become, but it might just take them too long. Like Bridges is a, t- a talented athlete, but thinking about him as like an above average starter, like that just, it just takes almost exactly. everybody time. Like it's, it's, right. That's not killing him. Just like we weren't criticizing really killing Kemba for this team being what they are. It's just that we, you have to acknowledge certain limitations and everything. And yeah, I, I, I'm wondering about that, but we can plenty more to talk about with Chris Herring, but first a message from Robin Hood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. Their goal is to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy, by making a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. And what I'm really impressed with, having used it for a little while now, is just how easy it is to use. I 
fit in with their target demographic, somebody who, you know, despite being in my 30s, never really got involved in any investment earlier in my life. And so it can be really intimidating. It can be something where there's a lot of information and feels like other people are ahead of you. And so they use easy to understand charts, market data. It's easy to, to, to make it happen and to get the information you need that you're making an informed decision. It's not just like, you know, playing a game or something like that, that you're actually doing the work that's necessary. And Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. So you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. It's a really impressive concept and it's really well executed. And on top of everything else, if you go to realgm.robinhood.com, Robinhood will give you a free stock like Apple Forder Sprint to help you build your portfolio. And again, that's realgm.robinhood.com. Check it out. Also have a message from our friends at TrueCar. 60 seconds. That is exactly how long this commercial lasts. You know what else you can do in about a minute? Get an offer for your car with TrueCar. That's right. In the amount of time it takes to floss your teeth, pet your dog, do a few sit-ups, or just listen to my beautiful voice, you can get a true cash offer. Best of all, you can do it from your smartphone or home. Just go to TrueCar and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Answer a few questions and you'll get an accurate true cash offer from a local TrueCar certified dealer. It's that easy. After that, you can bring your car in and they'll check it out with you together. You can ask questions, get the answers you need so there are no surprises. Then simply leave with your check or trade in your car for a new ride. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. Well, let, let's transition into uh, the, the piece that you wrote on Tyson Chandler because I think this is an interesting kind of topic for thinking about uh, – thinking about something that can be hard to quantify. And so basically what you were getting at in the Chandler piece was that he is, he adapted years ago. This is not a new development. It's just that it's being appreciated and it's easier to maybe quantify now to instead of grabbing rebounds himself. And he does it more on the offensive end, Well, he does it on both, but he does it on the offensive end. Instead of securing a rebound himself, maybe there are issues with jumping or all sorts of things. He just tips the ball back. And so his, his teammates are getting it. And there've been some high profile games that they basically won with this. And what I, I think what I enjoyed the most about the piece is this idea of trying to get at these things that we've noticed, but have been hard to measure until we got all the kind of camera and data type stuff. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I'll be really honest. Even in this case, um, I think it just kind of makes me a nutcase that uh, I decided to look into it. I mean, there's still nothing to really quite quantify it. I mean, what I went and did, I, I, I sat and looked at every single <laughs> offensive rebound that Tyson, Tyson Chandler has grabbed over the last five seasons plus this one, so I guess five plus seasons, looked back at each one of them and just said, okay, well, this one was one where he was clearly tapping the ball out to someone else or trying to, and you know, someone else coming up with the ball, but Tyson being, these were ones where Tyson was actually credited with the rebound. And so I, I can't imagine, I mean, I've spent hours and hours looking at each rebound that he'd gotten for the last, I think 943 rebounds total that I looked at of his on video. That's not even counting ones that he wasn't credited with, which would have required looking at every single one of his team's offensive rebounds and looking at where he'd kind of been short, short changed. Um, and he admits and acknowledges that, you know, there was a point in his career where he probably wasn't being credited with many, if, if any of those, uh, just because that there wasn't really anything in place for the scorekeepers to, to be told to do that. So I, I just wanted to look at it. I mean, I thought it'd be interesting. And honestly, one of the things that I thought was more interesting, too, um, I couldn't quite find a way to quantify it. But I, I did have a colleague try to help me with it to kind of get a sense of 
how often is the team scoring very clearly because Tyson gets them a wide open shot off something like that? And so that was tough to quantify as well. They, they definitely get shots off faster than average. I think the, the Suns ranked something like third in the league last year in terms of how quickly they got off a shot following an offensive rebound, not counting ones where you went right back up with it. Cause I got to feel like that's obvious and every team gets those. And obviously a team like last year's Clippers would rank really high in that just because DeAndre Jordan is going right back up so often. So we, we took those out ones that were within two feet and within two seconds right at the rim, but other sorts of shots that were uh, stemming from offensive rebounds and the Suns were third in the league in terms of pace right after offensive rebounds like those. And so I think a big part of that was Tyson Chandler. Um, and what I find interesting about it now, too, is just like, you know, we, we've all kind of noticed. And, you know, they've had nice moments where they shoot well. The other night was obviously an example of that where LeBron got his 51 against Miami, where the Lakers do actually shoot well from outside. But we know that just based on their roster, that that's not going to be an every night thing and that they kind of have guys that can shoot but, are you know, are inconsistent. The Lakers are very, very good or have been really good so far when they're wide open taking jump shots. Uh, they've been less than good and pretty bad when they're not very open taking jump shots. And so if Tyson can buy them an extra split second, second, second and a half, whatever it is, where guys aren't in position to defend the Lakers, whether it's from three or just mid-range or what have you, that becomes really valuable. And I think with how often he does it, it could be more valuable than we're used to seeing. The numbers, I mean, he did this more often with the Knicks than any other team he's been with recently. And I think that that was interesting because the Knicks were so spread out. And so if he was tapping the ball out to the perimeter, you know, the Knicks players were in many cases still standing right there. And there were several clips that I looked at where he tips the ball right to a Carmelo or right to a J.R. Smith. And I think that that's telling just because those guys, A, weren't really crashing the boards, but B, the Knicks that season, if you remember, at least the 12-13 season, broke the record for most three-point attempts in a year. And so Tyson fit that team very, very well. And I think the teams like that, it makes them even more difficult to defend when Tyson makes a play like that. So it'll be interesting to see how it fits. I mean, I think he actually would have fit even better with a Cleveland, not just his defense, but but obviously tipping the ball out to a team that's based the floor the way they did, or a Miami even. But, um, but I think he could still carry a lot of offensive value for a team like the Lakers just based for that reason. Agreed. And also his ability to set screens can help open up some of their guys that don't always necessarily reliably create separation. Obviously, it's not a problem for LeBron, but some of their other guys. And it also gets to this idea, and Chandler talking about how there were times in his career, maybe not now, but before, where he wasn't getting credited with those rebounds. And as much as we want to say, well, doing the right thing, I mean, that probably cost him some money. I mean, winning a championship in Dallas probably helped him recoup some of that money. But <laughs> you, you have you have those different approaches. And I think one of the elements that is that, I, and part of this is because I've been around the Warriors for so long, that was is a difference with them in the last couple of years, is this idea of tipping defensive rebounds that you can't secure yourself. And so basically the idea there is it doesn't really, it doesn't matter as much who gets it as long as we get it. And Chandler does that kind of a different way because the philosophy of offensive rebounding and defensive rebounding are different. It's who's around the floor and everything like that. And so something else that I'm excited to see with the Lakers is as these players adapt to what he does well making sure that they strike the balance of, you know, getting back in transition, but also making sure that if there is a tip out that they can do it and reading and understanding where things are makes them much better at that experience can be a really good teacher. 
Oh yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, that that was the part that I kind of harped on at the end of the piece is that you know and I remember this game pretty vividly, but there was a game in Brooklyn, uh, my first season on the Knicks beat, where Tyson told the Nets in a timeout, "Be ready," because basically Tyson says that he tries this when he's being he used the word double team, but basically when two different people when he's being boxed out on two different sides and he can't comfortably use both of his arms to try to grab a rebound that he'll use one or whichever one is closest to the ball to just tap the ball out to a teammate. And so, obviously, I mean, I think you most players are going to have a better sense of where the ball is coming off the rim and know where to stand based off that, especially with experience. But the other experience that you can garner to some extent is kind of where and how Tyson taps the ball out from and kind of looking at his body language to get a sense of how he's positioned to know where he might tip the ball to or if he's even going to tip the ball as opposed to going right back up with it. And so that's something that they could probably learn from the same way that players kind of read their teammates' body language when they're driving to know where to stand to spot up, basically to hunt a three-point shot from the corner or from the wing or to move off the corner to get over to the wing or what have you. So, I mean, it's just time and experience. Um, and I think that that will, that will become valuable for them too. It, it takes a while. I mean, this is a year of big change for the Lakers. LeBron alone. Um, takes a lot of time to kind of learn how to play with. And the first thing I noticed when I was watching them in preseason and early in the season is that you had a lot of guys that are kind of hyperactive and used to moving around that uh, on some level kind of need to learn how to stay more still. Uh, if LeBron's got the ball on the right block, you don't want to cut right into the lane necessarily, right into the space that he would kind of turn and try to make a play at the rim because you don't want to congest the lane any more than it already is, especially for a team that isn't the greatest with spacing all the time. And so, yes, you you know, certain things that seem intuitive actually kind of work the opposite with a player like LeBron. And I think the true, to some extent, is is, is true with Chandler, uh, is, is true of Chandler. And so they'll learn those things. It'll take time, but it's obviously they've gone five and one with them so far. Uh, and, you know, he's made a huge difference for them on defense in the minutes that JaVale's not there. And so it's it's gone better than I think anyone could have hoped or expected. I've wondered, since this is such a year of transition for the Lakers, and I've referred to it before as a gap year for LeBron, just because so many elements of this team could be very different next year, max space, all that kind of stuff. With how this season already, and of course there's a lot more of it left, how it will affect their approach on centers? Because I think they're kind of were thinking this idea of, oh, you know, we have all these like-sized forward type guys, front court guys, we can go into that approach. And it's possible that with a more energized LeBron James and numerous other things, that they will that, that could theoretically work in the playoffs. But they've gotten so much value from having JaVale, from having Tyson Chandler there. I wonder if Magic and Polinka are sitting there going, Well, that's probably not what we want to prioritize. We don't want to max out, like use that thirty million, thirty-five million, whatever on a center, but I wonder how they're thinking about that position now compared to, let's say, July when they built this team and only used minimums on bigs. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be an interesting question. I mean, I I honestly think that it also kind of opens my eyes to the things that, that, you know, I said that I think, I don't know if I was wrong about, but I think it does kind of show that while it was fair to criticize certain things about the way this roster was built, that he probably could have used money better, more efficiently in different places. I think we all understand the KCP situation and why the Lakers might have done that. But other things like Lance and, 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 you know, JaVale at the time at least. And then watching someone like DeMarcus Cousins go and sign with the Warriors. 
And just thinking, like, you really mean to tell me if you're the Lakers that that wouldn't have been an appealing move for you or something that you realistically could have done on the cheap to bring him in? And, yes, you might struggle for the first couple months without someone there. But once you get him back and if he's healthy, that's, you know, very reduced rate star power that you get from somebody, another star position when you've already got kind of a burgeoning Brandon Ingram, that could be at least a good thing to build off of. And then if you want to go take a swing for a major free agent next year, whether it's Kawhi or whoever, um, then you go do it. But then you potentially have even more people to kind of build with or kind of see what you've got. Um, it, it tells you very quickly that they they have something that works, at least for now it's worked. And, you know, I think that the it's similar to what the Warriors kind of found is that, they had so many stars on the wings, or at least good, capable players on the wings, or just one really good player like the Lakers have, one really great player, where the center takes on less importance because, you know, we obviously don't really need to run a traditional pick and roll quite as much um, because of how much they're going to post up, because of how much they're going to go one-on-one, because of how out of control Lance can be sometimes, and just doing his own thing and calling his own number, that... Uh, the traditional pick and roll set may become less important. And so the idea of that, at that point, you just need a center that can defend and that makes life difficult for people at the rim on the other side of the floor. And so, you know, that's kind of what the Warriors found is that, you know, they, they were using Zaza on some level as someone that could just kind of annoy people and get under their skin and, and set really hard screens or injure people or whatever. But they, you know, the five was something that they didn't invest a whole lot in because they knew that Draymond was going to play that. And the Lakers, to some extent, were going to play some of their minutes in small ball. And I think we found that that wasn't working for them the way we thought it might. But instead, finding that the minutes with JaVale were so good and so productive, and that I would say that he was probably their second best player, second most important player for those first three weeks or so, that they basically decided to go replicate it with someone that has a higher IQ than him. And so that's what they did. They obviously were able to get him on the buyout market and I mean, it's worked so far. And so, like we said, maybe it'll there'll come a time where it's not working the same way, where they have to kind of find a different strategy to go with. Maybe that comes before the summer, but I do think it bodes well in the sense of you know now that you've seen that you don't need the most traditional center as far as uh, someone that can you know that is going to be a big part of your offense or. I don't know. Maybe I guess Tyson is traditional, and I guess JaVale in some way is traditional just from the rim protection standpoint. But at least guys that you don't have to throw a ton of money at, that's a good thing. And, um, you know, obviously it will allow them to kind of move forward knowing that you might have kind of an archetype guy that, that fits that role um, that doesn't break the bank for you. And that might bode, bode well go, going forward just so that they can – throw that money at another forward or another guard or what have you. So it'll be interesting to see if it continues to work the way it has this year because it's been one of the bright spots for them has been the fact that that's worked and that they've been better with the big on the floor as opposed to what a lot of us thought that going small would be great for them. Sometimes they they kind of need to slow things down just a little bit and it works better for them that way. With all that said, and I don't disagree with much of it too strenuously, I think the missed opportunity for them was not DeMarcus Cousins. It was Julius Randle. I mean, Julius Randle, oh, <laughs> like... He he would have been a, a, a totally different dimension, and because of his relatively low cap hold, they wouldn't have had to sacrifice too much of what made of what makes this Lakers team good. I mean, we talked about the issues with Lance, and I, I think Rondo is was a more complicated fit, and 
Some of that might have been the front office being scared about Lonzo's injury and just saying we need somebody stable here because if we don't have somebody, then do do that. And the KCP Hart idea, which is what I would actually consider doing more often, which is having those two guys in with LeBron and defending the guards because they can both do that. And LeBron's running the show anyway. That's why I don't like the use of the term point guard, meaning ball handler all the time. But anyway, Randall, he's a beast and they had the leverage. And and that's the, the, the most frustrating part of this with me is, is I, I understand that they're ownership and the, like, had created the, or the front office more more than ownership had created this issue with Aaron Mintz and I mean it was way more complicated than just Julius Randle and it's nice to want to do right by a guy and it's also nice to not openly antagonize somebody who is a talented young player who didn't really do anything wrong it's just a victim of circumstance but if you add him to this team you start to get into some really fun stuff and they could have structured it I mean you could have structured a mutually agreeable deal where they could have paid him a bunch of money this year, way more than the Pelicans are paying him. And then instead of having a player option like he does in New Orleans, maybe you get either nothing for that future year or a non-guarantee or a partial guarantee or something else. And it seems like they let that go too easily because, I mean, he's been an absolute force for the Pelicans. I mean, I mean, God, I mean, guy is coming off the bench. I mean, he did start three games. Coming off the bench, averaging 26 minutes a game, 17 and a half points, eight and a half rebounds, and just wrecking. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also shooting a few threes now. I mean, he's, he's still, you know, it's still a small part of his game. He's still not making them, but he does everything else. And I don't give a crap that he's not making threes because when he wrecks the other team's off a defense the way that he does on offense, doesn't really matter a lot. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's an interesting one. I mean, and I, I, I agree too. And I, I pointed out when I wrote about the Pelicans, I was really high on the Pelicans this year. And I mean, honestly, there's not that much reason not to be as long as Davis is out there. When he's not, then it's, they're not going to win that much, even with Randall there. But, yeah, I mean, the, the first thing I pointed out in my piece about Randall and why I love this fit with the Pelicans, he just he, he's kind of a Swiss Army knife as far as what he can do, especially on offense. You know, maybe not a, a proficient three-point shooter, but he's giving you so much to where I don't know that that matters a whole lot, especially on that team. I think they have, you know, they have Miritich, they have Davis, they've got guys that can step out and do that. But what I love about his game is just, you know, which would fit with this Laker team, is just that he... He loves just going coast to coast. And, and, you know, aside from LeBron, and I guess maybe I've gotten to this point with Simmons and, and Giannis as well, I can't think of too many other guys that I would, you know, hate being in front of in transition more than Randall. Uh, like I said, maybe those three guys. But outside of that, uh, and Giannis, not because of the pain he'd inflict, but just because I know I'd get dunked on, uh, Randall's just a, a freight train. And um, having somebody like that who can give you minutes at the five, who can rebound pretty ruggedly and can defend his own spot well enough, who can give you some playmaking, who can shoot from mid-range and is comfortable taking that shot, is not going to hesitate, is going to keep you a fast-paced team. I, I, I was kind of blown away. I mean, I remember writing the piece when I uh, when LeBron agreed to go to the Lakers and you know kind of put a minimal mention in my story of what the Lakers would look like if they did away with Randall or what would happen with that money. Because I assume they would still want to keep him. And if I'm not mistaken, I want to say it was like a day, maybe two days later that, you know, that it was already out there that they weren't going to. Didn't they renounce him or something where very quickly it became clear they weren't going to keep him? And I was kind of stunned by that. And I'll be honest, I mean, very different players, but I still think both could have had a role in this offense. Not maybe Randall would have fit a lot better and would have been more expensive, but uh, Brooke Lopez as well. I just think someone that, you know, for all the 
questions that we all had about the way this team would fit from a shooting standpoint to think about that question and that problem and then to look at Brooke Lopez doing what he's doing in Milwaukee. I mean, granted, he's got a totally different kind of coach there and totally different system. But, I mean, if someone can shoot like that when they're given the green light, you know, maybe Brooke wasn't interested in continuing to stay there. Maybe Brooke didn't want to be on a team that was, I would say, kind of dominated so much by one player. But Giannis is obviously there as well. Um, obviously different people, different demeanors and what have you, different levels of drama. But, I, I mean, yeah, there were a couple guys they let walk, obviously, that you kind of felt like, why? Why wouldn't they do everything they could to keep this guy in the building? But, again, I mean, it's so early. They, uh, you know, I think the Randall thing bothered me a little bit more just because of how young he was and how well he seemed to fit with the rest of that core as far as how young he was. But, I mean, it's hard to argue. I mean, this is – they're right about where I hoped or thought they would be, if not a little bit better at this point. They, they got out to a rocky start. I think that was to be expected. But at this point, you know, certain things have worked better than I thought they would. Certain things have been exactly what I thought. But it's, it's hard to argue with where they're at. And, uh, you know, if they end up being a top half of the Western Conference playoff race, that's better than what I expected. I expected them to be maybe a five this year, maybe a six. And if they if they exceed that, you know, I think that they've got a good starting place going forward. I, I think the bigger question, like you said, this is a gap year for LeBron uh, to some extent. If that's the case, you've really got to be banking on the fact that he's not going to really show his age for a couple more years. Because, I you know, I, I kind of felt like there was no reason they couldn't have gone all in this year, uh, try to get Kawhi to be part of what you're doing this year. You know, if he wants to be in L.A., then he resigns next year. And if that's the case, then you've kind of got that already and you avoid the risk involved with, you know, just assuming that you're going to be able to add somebody else really good on to this team. And, uh, you know, particularly after LeBron's played through a full season that may or may not have mattered because you weren't in, in true contention. And I just think that it's a risk to assume that he's going to be at this level for too much longer. But uh, but it's worked well so far, and I can't really criticize that part of it. Agreed. Still more to talk about with Chris Herring, but I want to take a moment to tell you about our friends at betonline.ag. It is Thanksgiving week, and that means a ton of great football action. You got the NFL Thanksgiving game, Chicago-Detroit, Washington-Dallas, Atlanta-New Orleans, and then in college, Michigan-Ohio State, Washington-Washington State, Florida, Florida State, Notre Dame, SC, and a lot more. So you can go to betonline.ag, and if you use that promo code PODCAST1, P-O-D-C-A-S-T-O-N-E, you get a 50% sign-up bonus. So go online or use your mobile phone to sign up today and try in-game live betting where you can participate with all the action with every play. Also, lots of great basketball. I think there are 14 games on Black Friday. Thankfully, for my purposes, the NBA takes Thanksgiving off, but lots of great stuff over the course of the weekend and a great way to enjoy it. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus. Betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. And I'm wondering how they're going to evaluate all these young guys and, and their fit with LeBron because that's the other pivot they can do is if, if they can sign somebody and then they can move some of those other guys. Presumably it wouldn't be for cap space. It would be to get somebody else who's good, who's a who's a better fit age-wise and, and skill-wise with LeBron. Right. You brought up Brooke Lopez. I mean, Lopez is as a four-spacing five. That's something LeBron's dealt with a lot, but I think he just didn't want to be there. And the Milwaukee situation had to be really enticing. I mean, you have an ex- a coach that, that can fit in well, a team that 
is still figuring out who they are. Like, I can imagine that that was a re- genuinely exciting opportunity for him. And yeah, Lopez grew up in California. I mean, he grew up in Fresno more than he grew up in LA, which is, they're not even close to the same place. But one quick thing on the Lakers, uh, I've, I haven't heard this talked about as much, but, and I do not have any insight into Jimmy Butler's camp. But I think things are getting a little bit dicier for them in terms of who that star is going to be, because anytime that list gets narrowed, and so Jimmy Butler is obviously more likely to re-sign in Philly than he was in Minnesota when he told Minnesota he wasn't going to re-sign. So if you, maybe you don't all the way take him off the board, but let's say you get close to taking him off the board. I can assume Kyrie Irving's not going there for a few different reasons, though that would be in many ways the most insane possibility of all of them. So then really you're sitting there going, okay, you need one of KD, Kawhi, or Clay to go there. And certainly all of them have a possibility to. And, you know, getting Middleton, who would actually be a nice fit with LeBron or Kemba or something like that. There are other guys that would work in different ways. But I think they're a little bit more on the precipice here because all it takes is one or two of those guys saying, I just either I'm happy where I am or I don't particularly want to play on a LeBron team to get the options a lot narrower and a lot more ill-fitting than they are right now. Yeah, I, I mean, the the truth is, on a lot of that, it, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, I, I feel like it's a, it's kind of a, it feels like a cop-out, but I mean, the truth is, it, you really have to see how some of these seasons play out. I mean, I'll be really honest, I could totally see a situation where Philly stuff gets weird. I mean, I think that would be mostly self-inflicted with Butler if stuff got weird, you know, but obviously he's most likely to stay there just because the money would be biggest there. But these other situations, certain teams and how they finish, I mean, I, I don't – in what world would Kawhi – I mean, I don't know. I guess we've said this about different people. We, we just saw what happened with uh, with Kyrie Irving as well where, you know, pretty much guaranteed trip to the finals that he still wanted out of there. But certain players, you know, if you get Kawhi Leonard and the Raptors to the finals, I mean, are you realistically going to leave in a situation like that? Would you want to leave? In a situation like that, if you know, maybe he would. I mean, he left the Spurs, and so I guess everything's on the table. But I mean, depending on how this Lakers season kind of finishes up, too. You know, I'm very interested to see. LeBron's been in Cleveland. He's been in Miami. I get that wherever he is is kind of the center of the basketball universe. You know, notwithstanding Golden State. But if if they let's say they were to miss the playoffs, which I don't think that will happen, but let's say that were to happen. With LeBron playing and being healthy, that team will – that will be the never-ending story, you know, in the NBA. And I'm sure, you know, certain people will sign up readily to play there. Maybe there's still a big laundry list of people that wants to play with LeBron. But, I mean, you're, you're talking about a situation that is, like, pressure-packed. <laughs> I don't really know if it was a positive or a negative that Magic already had a talk with Luke Walton, which I thought – was just phenomenal or unbelievable, maybe not phenomenal, but unbelievable considering that he just said that this was going to take time, that LeBron had lost his patience even though he knew that this was going to take time. And so basically what I'm saying is certain people might have situations that are already just as good as far as the basketball standpoint of it. I can't speak to how these guys feel about L.A., but we have seen people choose smaller markets or just better teams before, you know, in in terms of, prioritizing that instead of just prioritizing the market. So I'm interested to see what happens. I mean, LeBron is the first clear-cut example of someone that we've seen in a while who chose to go play in L.A., even though that really wasn't the best winning situation that there was out there for him at the moment. We don't, we haven't seen that many other players do that. Um, you know, maybe there are people that are out there that will say, 
well, if I go there and LeBron's already there, then we become a championship team right then and right there. I'm also really curious to see what happens with the Warriors too, because I mean that that's kind of the big elephant in the room here is if Durant ends up leaving, I mean the league becomes pretty wide open again, depending on what happens with the Lakers and who signs up to play with LeBron, especially if Durant decides to go all the way east. And if Kawhi stays with the Raptors, I mean that all of a sudden we're looking at uh, uh, you know, the field, the playing field's been leveled quite a bit at that point. So I, I don't have the slightest clue what will happen. We're still so far out, you know, seeing or do any of these teams get uh, well above the 60 win mark this season. But it, it'll be fascinating because I, I think really so many of these guys have a legitimate chance to at least make real noise in the playoffs with their new team. Where, you know, to me, when I think about that, I normally am of the opinion that like this guy wouldn't want to leave. But obviously that that doesn't always hold true. Yeah, a lot of I think a lot of players are still unsure of like what they want to do. This isn't a circumstance where you're just biding time for whatever is going to happen. I think there is a lot of evaluation that is still left, which makes this really exciting. And the way I want to end this, I've been ending almost every podcast this way recently because I just think it's an, a worthwhile question, which is you can watch the whole league. You do watch the whole league. What are you looking forward to? What are you keeping an eye on over the next few weeks? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm legitimately interested in, in some of these teams uh, who are – performing a little bit better than we thought they would or a little bit worse. And so I'm interested to see. I mean, I think we've all kind of had an eye on Boston. Are they – I mean, they're, they're the number one defense in the league. They have so much offensive talent to where you look at, you know, them ranking in the 20s and you kind of see that as a misprint almost. Um, they were ice cold in the preseason. That's kind of continued on through this season. And it kind of gets um, – becomes a little bit put on the back burner seeing it as a problem when you see Kyrie go off for 40 or you see Tatum hit four or five mid-range shots in a row, really tough shots where, you know, you feel like these guys are back on track and then they have another performance that makes you think, you know, what's going on here. Um, so that's what I'm looking at in the East. I, I feel like the other teams, like we've said, the top five out East is about what I think most of us expected. What I'm interested to see now in the West though, are the teams that have been surprisingly stronger than what we expected. So, you know, I, I, I'm not shocked by the Clippers. I actually said at one point that, you know, if the Lakers didn't get LeBron, that I thought the Clippers would hands down be better than them. Uh, I would have sounded a lot smarter if I'd said they'd be better than them, even if they do get LeBron, or that they'd be just as good. And they have looked, they've looked solid this year. I mean, it's a team that, you know, I, I think it's kind of more of something that you say in football or maybe you say in the playoffs, but like kind of the team that nobody wants to play where you know you're going to get a physical game and, you know, it's just not going to be easy and guys that are going to play hard for 48 minutes. The Clippers fit that bill. Portland has looked better than I expected this year. And I think maybe I'm a little bit biased and in a negative direction with them just because I normally don't like the idea of a team that just gets beaten down in the playoffs coming back exactly the same. And, and they do have some different rotation bench guys and stuff like that. Starting five is the same. You know, they, they're – Flaws were totally exposed in the playoffs uh, by a good team, um, obviously. But uh, I just kind of felt like they had to shake things up more than they did. And that, and obviously they've come back and looked strong to start the season. I mentioned the Grizzlies earlier and really like what they're doing and like what they've got. You know, they've kind of had like a grit and grind uh, volume two, so to speak, with the sorts of guys they have. Um, and so I, I'm interested to see, like, how long do these teams hang around? How long do the Kings hang around or, you know, are they already kind of on the downswing of what they're doing? I, I always like kind of interesting, fresh stories that we weren't expecting. And so I think the East is is legitimate in terms of what we've seen so far. I think the West, you might still kind of have an imposter or two that's kind of hanging around. 
closer to the top of the Western standings and aren't going to stick there. Um, and obviously, you know, we'll, we'll see the Warriors. Like, I'm, they're probably what I'm least concerned about. I think there are very legitimate questions that have been raised in the last two weeks about whether or not we'll see Durant as a Warrior next year. And that's a big question, but it obviously won't get answered here this season. Um, not until we get to the summer. Or, you know, who knows, maybe something will happen where it becomes very clear that he's leaving beyond what we've already seen. But I'm just kind of interested to see which Western teams kind of stick around that we weren't expecting to be there in the first month, two months of the season. Something else that I really enjoy about those surprise teams in the West is that they're all fun to watch. So, like, I mean, Sacramento, their games have been a blast this year so far when they've been really running. and. I feel like I'm watching a tennis match, like, with my eyes going from one side of the court to the other, just how fast they play. And the Clippers are fun. They have a lot of good guys. Shea doing as well as he has as a rookie has been really exciting, and I'm happy that he's gotten the opportunity and, and really run with it. New Orleans is just when they're on, when Davis is playing and everything, they're awesome. They also like they have this really weird propensity to have really good games, and every once in a while they're flat, like their shots aren't going in. They had that one I'm trying to remember who was against after they beaten Toronto in one of the best performances of the year so far for me. They just got they got worked by somebody, and Denver has fun, Denver's fun too, and so it's interesting to see where all that's going to shake out and. It might take a while. It, it very well might, and, and injuries in both conferences are going to be an important part of that as well. Thankfully, this season hasn't really been defined by that yet, but it's coming because it always is. You know, I don't think that I don't think that the laws of gravity no longer apply. Like that's that's the way this works. But it's going to be. I, I think the next month is going to be just so much fun to see which which of these stories is for real and which ones are not. Yeah, and I, I think we'll get a clear sense. I, I think normally I, I can't remember what. The threshold is, I don't think it's 10 games, but maybe it was 20, that generally you can look at the standings after 15 or 20 games and then look back at game 82, and they're basically the same. Maybe you've had a team move position, but that the playoff teams are generally already in position. You know, maybe you get one team that switches and and kind of launches himself into that conversation. But I I think, well, I, I still think that will be the case. I mean, I think certain things will wear off. Schedules by that point seem to have played more even evenly as far as who they've had to face by that point, and you know they've had a road a, a real road trip or two by then, and so so I, I think we'll get a clear sense soon. I, I I do actually believe in the Clippers. I think their defense is real. I actually believe in the Grizzlies quite a bit too. But it'll be interesting to see that if those things happen, who falls out as a result of it. And I think it may still be a little bit too soon to know that. Agreed. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, no problem at all. Thanks for having me as always, Danny. Thanks again to Chris Herring for taking the time to come on. You can read him at 538, and you can follow him on Twitter at Herring underscore NBA. That's H-E-R-R-I-N-G underscore NBA. Does great work. We talked about the Tyson Chandler piece. Definitely worth reading. Then he's done some other good work recently. He did a piece on Kyle Lowry taking charges, and then there's a bunch of good stuff. I mean, you can check out his, his author page and all the other work that people are doing at 538. Really enjoyed the conversation. Happy with where it went, how it turned out, and... I find Charlotte's situation just so fascinating. So I was happy we got to spend some time on that. Their decision-making process has to be just brutal to, to figure all of these things out. And I love having those conversations. Chris is a great person to have them with. Hopefully you enjoyed the show as well. If you did, 
There are a lot of great ways that you can support it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. I, I'm fine if it's not. And if you want to be super awesome and you listen to something other than Apple Podcasts, you can leave a review in both places. And the point of that is really to help other people find the show. Sure, if I look at the reviews and it makes me feel good if they're nice, but it's really more about getting people in that mix. You can also subscribe, download every episode. Great thing to do with Real Jam Radio because it doesn't come out on the same day of the week. You don't have to get into a habit with it because you can't really. So you just get it there. And then, of course, the biggest thing you can do to support this show and any other one that has them is check out our advertisers, radpowerbikes.com slash podcast. They're doing that awesome Cyber Monday sale, but they have great prices anyway. But you can check it out, especially then, because if you're looking for the same thing, you might as well get it for significantly cheaper. Robinhood, I've been really impressed with it. As I said, you know, I've been using it now for a few months and very, very impressed with the format. Go to Robinhood through the URL, realgm.robinhood.com. And then not only do you tell them you came from us, but you get an extra stock, which is awesome. Help build your portfolio. Betonline.ag, use that podcast one promo code for a 50% signup bonus. And then of course, our friends at Pluto TV and TrueCar. And spreading the word, however you see fit, you know, telling people, hey, this is a really good episode or this is a podcast. And I mean, this one's been going on a long time, but it's still something that people are finding out about. And that's part of the joy of it is the show's consistently grown throughout its, oh God, like four or five years, however long this has been going. And you can also check out my work, Dunked On, Nate and I, five times a week. Most weeks, we're actually doing shorter this week due to Thanksgiving. And my writing work is mostly at The Athletic at this point, but I do want to do some stuff for Real GM. I have always have things in mind. It's just about when I can slice out the time to do everything that I want to do. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com. It's way better to do it by email than by Twitter. Twitter is so ephemeral, and it's just there's so much going on. And it's funny. I've gotten some feedback, which has been really nice over the last week or two. And I, I say this at the end of every episode to say, if, you've take, if you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. And it's 100% true. It is. Whether it's long, whether it's short, if you take that time, it, it matters to me. And, and I will always do that. I might not always respond. I might not always respond right away. People could attest, like, sometimes it's months. But I always read it right away. It's just either I don't think of response or a lot of times maybe I'm like reading on my phone. I don't want to send a, an email response on my phone. It just feels impersonal. So I always do read it, though. That's exceedingly important, usually within 12 to 24 hours. And yeah, that's really all about for now. Don't know what next week's going to hold. I have some ideas, but I don't know exactly where it's going to go. Might depend on what happens this weekend, a couple of different circumstances to see what is the big story. But that's the way this works. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.